from Luke's Gospel, starting in, in the first chapter and at the 26th verse, we'll read through verse 38. We'll do as we normally do. I will begin uh, reading. You read with me, and then uh, just continue reading through the passage. Let's read. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are thanking you today for your word. What a blessing, O oh God, to hear of the angel prophetically coming to this young woman that God would be born in the flesh to us, the Savior, the expected Messiah, the one who we desperately were in need of. Oh God, we pray that today we will hear your word clearly even as it says of Mary in, in, in other parts that she would treasure these words in her heart, may we treasure your word in our hearts. And Lord, look to you who alone has the hope of the world. And so we give you glory, honor, and praise. Speak to us now in these moments, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I want to speak uh, for a few moments from these verses on the title, Preparing for the Promised Savior. Preparing for the Promised Savior. Some of you know something about the word anticipation. Anticipation. It's the Christmas season, and uh, I remember as a child anticipating Christmas morning. Has anybody else ever been there? I remember going into my parents' room at 
2 o'clock in the morning and say, are we ready? Is it morning yet? 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock. Just anticipating the reality of the presence that I had been waiting for being under the tree. Anticipation. There was a, a song about anticipation and a catch-up commercial about anticipation. Anticipation is making me wait. It's keeping me way, yay, 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 ting is what the song said, right? So anticipation, we know what it's like to anticipate. And, and as we come to this scripture, as Dr. Luke is writing his gospel, he is doing so in, in the understanding that the people of God, the people of Israel in the first century, as Jesus is about to come on this scene, it is a time of anticipation. They have been for a long time anticipating that son of David, that Messiah, that Savior who would come. And they, they were greatly anticipating the Savior to come, the messianic hope. At this time, they were under the rule of the Roman government. And they hated that rule of Rome giving their money and taxes and having to obey the rules and the regulations of, of Rome. It was something that they didn't like at all. I'm going to read for you briefly something from a document which was from the first century B.C. It's called From the Psalms of Solomon. Um, not written by Solomon, however, in the first century B.C. But it says this, See, Lord, and raise up for them a king, the son of David, to rule over your servant Israel, undergird him with the strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers. He's talking about Rome. To purge Jerusalem from Gentiles who trample her to destruction. In wisdom and in righteousness, drive out the sinners from, your, from uh, the inheritance. To smash the arrogance of sinners like a potter's jar. Then it says... At this warning, the nations will flee from your presence, and he will condemn sinners by the thoughts of their hearts. This kind of gives you a picture, a window, into the expectation of Israel at this time. It was a messianic expectation, but it was also an expectation that was very tied to a political messiah who would come for the Jews, who would love the Jews, but the Gentiles and the sinners he would have no part of. And, and Dr. Luke, as he unfolds his gospel, has a very different gospel and a very different Messiah than that one. The one who comes, Jesus, comes not only for the Jews, but he comes for Gentiles, and I'm thankful that he did. I'm a Gentile, y'all. <laughs> I've been grafted into the tree. And, and, and so th this great anticipation surrounds all that is going on in this day. And so we're, we're just going to kind of walk through these verses, verse by verse this morning, and, and look at this uh, as we look at preparing for the promised Savior. And I do have, you know, usually I have three points. Somehow God just puts it together that way. But there's three points again here. The first is the preparation of the promise. The preparation of the promise. That's verses 26 through 33. And let's, let's just look at, uh, starting at verse 26. He says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God 
to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. So he begins by talking about, and we're going to just answer a few questions here, the when, the where, and the who, and the what. So in these few verses, we'll look at the answers to those questions. But the when, he says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel came. Now, what is the sixth month? If you just go back in the passage a little bit, verse 24, uh, in, in the verses before this, it, there, it foretells the birth of John the Baptist. And uh, the angel Gabriel comes to uh, John the Baptist's father as well, Zechariah, and prophesies the birth of, of John. And then his wife Elizabeth is pregnant. And in the, verse, in the 24th verse, it says, And for five months she kept herself hidden. And now this is the sixth month. So the sixth month is six months after uh, Elizabeth uh, became pregnant with John the Baptist. Now in the sixth month, that's the when. That's the when. Luke is, of, of all the writers in the New Testament, he is the careful historian. He, 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 he gives us details that you don't see anywhere else. Dr. Luke had put together this gospel and the book of Acts so that the church would understand and that the people would know exactly how God did things. If you look back in the first chapter here at verse 4, it says, uh, he's writing to Theophilus at the end of that verse, he says, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke puts things together very carefully. Most of what we know about the infancy narratives of Jesus and his early life come from Luke and from Luke alone. They're not in Mark. They're not in Matthew. They're not in John. We find out from Luke that one day Jesus was brought into the temple and dedicated and Simeon prophesies over over the baby Jesus. We find out that Anna is a prophetess that had been there in the temple for many, many years. We find that out from Luke and from Luke alone. We find out about 12-year-old Jesus going back into the temple and confounding the scribes and the Pharisees with his wisdom. We don't find these things out from any other writer, any other source, but Luke, as the careful historian, went back to sources and wrote this account so that the faith that you have in Jesus Christ might be made sure. So he gives us this account. The when is the sixth month. The where, he says again in this, sixth, in this 26th verse, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth. So the place is in Galilee, in a little city, a little town, called Nazareth. It is an unimpressive place at best. Nazareth is not mentioned once in the Old Testament. You won't find the name of that little town mentioned at all. Galilee is talked about, but usually not in, in wonderful terms about, wow, Galilee is the place to go, y'all. We really ought to hang in Galilee. It's not like the cool, trendy place to go. As a matter of fact, when Isaiah talks about uh, Galilee in chapter 9, it's part of a prophecy of the coming of Jesus, but it's known as Galilee of the Gentiles or Galilee of the nations. It is like, uh, yeah, it's part of Israel, but it's, it's Galilee, 
you know? It's not, it's not like the good part of Israel. It's where, you know, if you can't afford to live in Judah, I guess you can get a little crib up in Galilee somewhere. It's, it's not the good place to be. Uh, it's, it kind of reminds me of where I live sometimes. I live in Logan. I live in Logan. A few years ago, I was uh, pulled over by a policeman, and uh, it was for something that I did wrong. I, I forget what it was. My bad, my bad. But he pulls me over, and he looks at my license, and he says, you live, you live there? I said, yeah. I live there. He said, when you moving? I don't think I'm moving anytime soon, sir. Um, but he's like, do you really li- you live there? And, and what he was saying is, you're a white guy and you live there? That's what he was saying. I knew what he was saying. You really live there? They moved out 25 years ago. I don't know what you're doing here, man. So, so the place is Galilee. It's, it's not a sexy place to live. It's not a cool place. It's like, uh, e- even in, 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 in John's gospel, uh, Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Are you kidding me? Jesus of Nazareth, you think he's the Messiah? <clears throat> I don't think so. He's from Nazareth. Nazareth's nothing. So that's the when, and, that, and that's the where. And now let's look at the who. He says uh, in verse 27, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So as, as we're getting this, this, this promise, the preparation for the Savior, the who is, is this Savior is going to come through a, a young woman named Mary. She is a virgin. This is now getting a little bit strange. Um, uh, earlier in the chapter, uh, the angel Gabriel had come to Zechariah and prophesied about John the Baptist being born. Uh, Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth were old and barren. God had done that sort of work before, hadn't he? With old and barren people. Uh, Abram and, and Sarah were happy he did that. Hannah and her husband Elkanah, although They weren't necessarily old and beyond years, but they were barren. And God came to the old and to the barren. But now God is upping the ante a little bit, isn't he? He's not just coming to someone who's old or someone who's barren. He's coming to someone that's a virgin. Now there was uh, uh, some precedent in the Bible, uh, a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 7 and and verse 14 that said the virgin will be with child and she will bear a son and his name will be Emmanuel. Matthew picks up on that as as the prophecy of Jesus Christ coming into the world. But there was also a near-term fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. Uh, At that time, there was another young woman, in all likelihood, who was a virgin at the time of the prophecy, but not at the time of conception, who who then had a child, and that child was named Emmanuel. That child was not God with us, but that was the name, And, and that was a sign to King Ahaz of what was about to happen in judgment 
to Judah and Israel. And so at that time, the army of Assyria came in, and that child being born was a sign. But ultimately, the prophecy of Isaiah is ultimately fulfilled here in Luke's gospel and in in all the gospels by the birth of Jesus Christ, who's not only born to a woman who was a virgin at the time of the prophecy, but at the time of giving birth. She's a virgin. So God ups the stakes here. And so we see the the when and the where and the who. But now let's look at the what here and the preparation uh, for the promise, the what. Verse 28, and this verse says, And he came, this is the angel Gabriel, and said to her, Greetings. The, The Greek word there is kyrie. It means rejoice. It's from uh, the the root word charis, grace. So rejoice in grace. Greetings. He says, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Man, if an angel ever comes to me, I hope there's a greeting something like that. I'm afraid there might be something else, but I'm covered. I just got to say I'm covered in the blood, y'all. Um, But he comes and he says, greetings, Uh, rejoice in grace, O favored one. This is an interesting word that's used here, O favored one. It's only used two times in the whole New Testament. And again, it's a word that comes out of the word grace, but it's a verbal form in this in, in this instance, it's, uh, it's a participle, but, but it com- he comes and says, Oh, favored one, blessed one, graced one, hail the one who is full of grace, the one who has been graced of God. Only used one other time, and that one other time, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And we'll read a few verses. It's in verse 6, but you've got to get the context. The only other time that this terminology is used in the Scripture. Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 3. The Bible says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4 even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. The only other time that word is used is at the end of this verse, the second to the last phrase, with which he has blessed us. Again, he has graced us. He has poured out his unmerited favor and love upon us because of what Christ has done for us. Paul uses this terminology. It's the blessing of God. It's the favor of God. It's the grace of God. The angel comes to announce the grace of God. Now, if I was just a little more Pentecostal charismatic, I would tell each of you to stand up right now, slap your neighbor in the head three times and say, favor ain't fair, favor ain't fair, favor ain't fair. But I'm not quite that Pentecostal today. So I'm not going to ask you to do that. But we ought to realize that the, the truth of the matter is favor ain't fair. 
If you know Jesus, you've received the favor of God. You've received the grace of God, even as Mary did. Mary was not blessed with favor because she was sinless and perfect. She was blessed with favor because God decided to love her and to cause this blessing from God to come through her. You're not anything in this world or in the Lord because of something that you've done or he just saw something in me and he knew what I would do. Oh God, what would you do apart from the grace of God? I don't want to think about what I would do apart from the grace of God, but it would be U-G-L-Y. It would be ugly. It would not be good. And so God... Uh, God doesn't come in, in fairness to us. He comes in love to us. See, God is the only one who cannot be fair in that sense, and yet he's just and righteous and true. He's never unfair to anyone in terms of giving them what they, what they don't deserve in, in terms of uh, his, his condemnation or in, in terms of... Uh, 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 Having people receive the just penalty for their sin, that's fair. That's fair and right. But if you know Jesus Christ today, if you know what it is to be set free and pardoned from your sin, then then you know the favor and the blessing of God. So he comes to her in favor, and he comes to her in blessing. And, and, And... The Bible says in verse 29, he came and said to her, the greeting, O favored one, the Lord is with you, verse 29. But she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. I read this and I said, why is Mary so troubled? Man, I'd be like, yes. (laughs) He came and called me favored and blessed and graced. But she's troubled by this saying. Why is Mary troubled by this saying? A few possible reasons. First of all, the one who's saying it. The one who's coming to her is no less than the angel Gabriel. We learn earlier in this chapter, uh, in verse 18, uh, he had come to Zechariah, and Zechariah was kind of questioning him. We'll look at that in a little while. But uh, the angel says, uh, or Zechariah says, how shall I know this? And, and later on, the angel is going to kind of rebuke Zechariah and say, don't you know I'm Gabriel? I've been, I came from being in the presence of God. And you're, you're asking, how am I going to know this? Bad question, Zechariah. Th- this angel is splendorifitous. I'm trying to learn from you, but I'm not doing very good, Pastor E. But, but this angel is, is amazing, right? Is, is incredible, is wonderful, is powerful, is glorious. And so I can just imagine I'd be a little scared of whatever this angel had to say. So she's troubled by this remark. But on top of that, Mary understands who she is. Mary is a young woman. In, in, in Israel at this time, women were betrothed to be married. They could be as young as 12 years old. Now, they wouldn't be married at that time. They were betrothed. They would continue to live with their parents until the actual marriage ceremony took place. But she was probably a young teenage girl. And she knew where she was from. 
She was from Galilee. She was from Nazareth. She was from the wrong side of the Israelite tracks. She was nothing special. She had not accomplished any great thing in her life. And so Mary's like, why me? I don't understand. Is there something behind curtain number two that I don't even want to look at right now? She's a little scared by this greeting. Now, she's also, she's a young Jewish woman. And so she knows of the history of the Jewish people and those who throughout the history of the Jews had received the favor and the grace of God in great ways. She knows about Abraham. This great man of faith, the father of our faith, she knows about Moses and Noah and David and all of these pillars of the faith, these great characters uh, from the Old Testament. And then she looks in the mirror and said, I don't look anything like that. She even knows of the great women of the Old Testament, whether it's Deborah or Esther or others who were greatly graced and favored Hannah by God and used by God in various ways. And she looks at herself and says, how do I stack up with that? Now, here's here's the interesting thing to to receive God's grace. That's the position you want to be in. You want to be in a position of gospel neediness if you're going to receive God's grace. Not, and, and I don't want to turn this message into a moralistic one because that's not the primary focus of it, but we can learn something here about what it means to be in position to receive God's grace. We do that not when we come to God entitled for him to give us something that we ought to have from him. But we, we are in position to receive God's grace when in humility, and if you read through Luke's gospel, he speaks much of humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Matthew says. Luke simply says, blessed are the poor. His is the gospel, particularly to the poor and the needy and, and, and the disenfranchised. And so Luke comes, and, and as he, he's, he's sharing this with us, he shares, uh, shares with us more Mary's poverty and her neediness and her awareness of it that makes her ripe to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's go on with, with the what here. Verse 30, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Again, he just says, you got favor, girl. You you, you got grace. Verse 31, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. This is the what. The what specifically of this promise is is a prophecy of the birth of the Son of God. That's the what. It is a prophecy of the birth of the Son of God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Matthew tells us why. He says, uh, you'll call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus comes from the Hebrew Yasha or Yeshua, which means the Lord saves. So you will call his name Yeshua. You will call his name Jesus. You will call his name the Lord saves. You will call his name the Lord saves. Verse 32, 
and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. He will be called the Son of the Most High. In, in Hebrew, that would be El Elyon. El Elyon is used throughout the Old Testament. 126 times this terminology is used to talk about God Most High. It's used when the priest Melchizedek is called uh, the priest to the God Most High. It's used at many points in the Old Testament to talk about the greatness of, and the almighty nature of who God is. And he says to this young teenage girl that you're going to have a son and that he will be called the son of El Elyon, the son of the Most High God. Can you, can you just imagine for a minute what Mary's going through right now? She's like, man, is he going to weigh like 150 pounds? Like, what kind of baby is this going to be? I'm really scared right now. He's going to be the son of the Most High high God. That, that, that term is not used much in the New Testament at all. It's only used 13 times. Nine times it's used in Luke and Acts and the other four times elsewhere in the New Testament. But it's emphasized in Luke to speak of the nature of Christ and to equate him as God Most High. So he will be called Son of the Most High God. Now, now let's continue to look at that verse. Um, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. This is the Davidic covenant uh, from 2 Samuel chapter 7 actually coming into fruition in the New Testament. God is going back and saying he will be that promised Messiah, that king that will reign forever on the throne according to David, the one who I will be a God to, I will be a father to and he will be my son. Solomon was again the immediate fulfillment of those words in the Davidic covenant, but we know that Solomon didn't quite do everything he was supposed to do so well. Amen. Solomon built the temple. Solomon was a great king. Solomon had mighty conquests, but Solomon was a sinner. And he was a big sinner if you read the Bible a little bit, right? But, but there's coming a seed of Abraham, a seed of David who will reign forever and his kingdom will have no end. This is the one, Mary, who's coming to you and through you. This is the baby that's about to be born to you, Mary, teenage girl from Nazareth in Galilee about to get married to a working-class dude, a carpenter. But this is the one who is coming. And he will reign, verse 33, over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. That is the preparation for the promise, but now, very briefly, there's a problem here. There's a problem, and Mary... Mary has a question in verse 34. She simply says to the angel, how? How will this be? I've never heard anything like this. Since I am a virgin. Actually, in the Greek, it says, since I have not known a man. 
I'm a virgin. I've never known a man. You're telling me that I'm going to have a baby. Okay, the son of God stuff and the most high stuff and the Davidic stuff. But all of that, that that's amazing. But how am I going to have a baby? I don't have, I have not been with a man. I haven't known a man. That's a problem. That's an issue. Now, the interesting thing here is that, you know, she asks this question and, and the, the angel uh, Gabriel is favorably disposed to answer her question. He doesn't get any rebuke for it. When, when Zechariah asked the question of Gabriel, he got a mad rebuke. The, he, he asked him, he said, how will I know? Now, Mary, look at the tone of her question. She didn't say, how am I going to know this is going to happen? She just said, how is it going to happen? <laughs> she didn't say, can I know it? So she asks from faith, not understanding, but faith. We, we really need to be careful, y'all, about equating faith and understanding because if you're going to believe the God of this Bible most of your life, no matter how much you study, I don't care how much Hebrew and Greek you know, I don't care how many care, uh, 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 commentaries you read, how many podcasts you listen to, you are going to go around most of your life saying, Lord, how can this be? Like, I don't understand it. And that is a good question. Is a question is an offering to God. I don't understand. That's an okay place to be. But when Zechariah says, how am I going to know you're telling the truth? We've got to be careful, though. Often, because our lives have been infected with lies from the enemy, that is very often the disposition of the souls of Christians when we question God. How do I know you're telling me the truth? I know you love him. I know you love her. I kind of know you love me, but how come you don't love me like that? So Zechariah gets rebuke. He can't speak until John is born. He's just, but he's still happy. He's like, I got a son. He can't say it. He can just write it down, right? Um, so he gets that rebuke. There's no rebuke for Mary. Her question comes from a good place. But so, so let, let, let's go right into the performance of the promise now. These last few verses, starting at verse 35. How does it actually going to come about? It's going to answer her question. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Wow, what's that like? And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. How can this be? I don't know a man. I have never had sexual relationship, and yet you say, I'm going to have a baby. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the Most High will overshadow you. The term uh, overshadow is the same term that's used in Exodus 40 and verse 35 and other places in the Old Testament when it talks about the glory of God descending upon the tent of meeting to meet with Moses. It says, it, it uses that same word in, in, in the Septuagint that we see here that he comes to overshadow uh, the, 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 the glorious presence of God, comes on the tent of meeting to meet with his servant Moses. He overshadows that place, and God says to this young teenage girl, he's going to come to you, and he's going to overshadow you with his presence. That's how it's going to happen. Can you imagine hearing that? Like, <laughs> What does that mean? 
How, how do I get pregnant from that? I don't understand. There's still, even though he tells her what's going to happen, it's still beyond human comprehension. But, but it's something to be believed. So he simply says, the Holy Ghost is going to come, and, uh, over, and the Most High will overshadow you. Look from there. It says, therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy the Son of God. God is a promise-keeping God. If there's going to be a Savior, there needs to be a man born with no sin because a sinner can only die for his own sin. But he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The promise that I've made from way back in Genesis 3, when sin first entered this world through Adam and Eve's fall, the the promise that I made and the judgment that I made upon the serpent, even in that day in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, that promise is coming to fruition now because there is one who is going to be born who is without sin. And that is why this ima- the, the, the conception of Jesus by the Holy Spirit through a virgin is critical for our faith. We need to understand that and know that the, 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 the Christian faith of all faiths depends on the history of what God has done in time through men and women and by his massive power in this world and above this world to accomplish his purposes. It matters that it actually happened this way. Mary was a virgin impregnated by God himself so that she would have a seed that would be able to crush the head of the serpent. He never paid for his own sin because he had none. He was able to pay for your sin and for my sin. The Holy Spirit overshadows her. Verse 36, and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. The angel graciously tells Mary about her older relative Elizabeth and her pregnancy. And even though Mary didn't ask for a sign, Mary didn't say, um, you need to show me a sign like Gideon or even like Zechariah or like others in, in the New Testament. She doesn't ask for a sign, but God tells her, look, your old relative Elizabeth, she's pregnant. She's in her sixth month already. And then, he's, and, and then he says, for nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. We've got to be careful, though, I, I, would, I would just caution in how we use a verse like that. Nothing is impossible with God. I, I remember a, a woman from a church I used to serve in coming to me. She was so excited, and she said, nothing is impossible with God. I said, amen, sister, glory be to God on high. And she said, I said, what's up? She said, I, I had no money pastor and I went into the car dealership glory to God (laughs) I had nothing and I came out praise Jesus with a brand new car didn't pay them a penny nothing is impossible with God 
I said, oh, goodness. I know nothing's impossible with God, but I also know that a good marketing technique is to sell you a car you can't afford, and in five months they'll repossess it, too. Because they probably gave you a 23% interest rate, knowing you can't make the payments, and they'll get that sucker back. But she said, nothing's impossible with God. See, we've got to be careful how we use the Bible. This is used in context to talk about uh, the virgin birth of the Messiah who's about to come into the world. Nothing is impossible with God. It reflects the words of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1 that nothing is impossible with God. So, but this is not just a general blanket statement. Make up what you want and use this verse. Don't use it that way. But, but you can hold on to this verse. When you know the promises of God, when you know what God has promised in his word, and you hold on to those promises, no matter what life looks like, no matter what circumstances look like, no matter how bleak it is and how, how, how dreary it is, you can hold on to the promises of God and remember that with God, nothing is impossible. God calls us to know that and to believe that, but be careful how we use it. Uh, be careful how you use that. The last verse here, verse 38, it simply says, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary takes all this in, this promise from this incredible angel about a Messiah being born through her, this woman of no great accomplishment, from no great place, young, inexperienced, no resume, and she says, I'm the servant of the Lord. Same words Hannah used in 1 Samuel 1. Behold, the servant of the Lord. In other words, God, I'm at your disposal. Now, if I think about it for a minute, it means I'm going to be an unwed mother in Israel. It means... Because Joseph wasn't with me, he might divorce me. I don't, I don't know what's going to happen because in, in that day, even in betrothal before the marriage, to break that, there needed to be a divorce. Uh, it, it means that people are going to look on me. It means that I'm going to be a scandal. It means that I'm going to be looked at all kind of ways. What is going on here? And, and you'll notice that right after these verses, the first thing she does is she packs her bags and goes to Elizabeth's house. Like, I want to be with someone else that might understand what I'm going through right now. So this is, a, this is a beautiful word. It's an incredible promise, but it's hard. It's difficult. And she says, behold, I'm the Lord's servant. Be it unto me according to your word. Put yourself at the disposal of God. So just a, one question as we close. This is the only place that the scripture talks about this event. So the question is, why? Why, why did this need to be recorded? I have just a couple of thoughts for you on that. First of all, from the beginning of this gospel, God wants you to know the details of what he's done to encourage you in your faith. That you may have certainty, Luke says, concerning the things that you've been taught. Secondly, and this is really important to understand this passage and many other passages, 
If you're going to understand it, you have to understand that Mary's not the central figure in this passage. The central figure is Jesus Christ. The passage fits in the whole narrative to tell us about this coming Savior and then throughout Luke's Gospel and even into Acts, which is more the acts of the Holy Spirit than the acts of the apostles, but it tells us of the work of God through Jesus Christ to save a people. He's the center of it all. And then lastly, God wants you to see the continuity of His word and promise as He brings Jesus Christ, our Savior, into the world. All the way, as I spoke about earlier, going back to Genesis 3.15, the seed of the, womb, uh, of the woman who will bruise the head of the serpent. Jesus Christ comes uniquely in all of history as the only one who could rightly be called the seed of the woman. And by His holy life and by His atoning death, he crushes the work of the devil forever. The God-ordained means of destroying every effect of sin reaches its climax in the birth, in the life, in the death, and of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So in all of this, the covenant-keeping God watches over and preserves the seed in order that all of His promises might be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The seed who will crush the serpent's head is preserved throughout history. The seed is kept after the, murderous, after the murder of righteous Abel through the gracious gift of, of Seth. The seed was kept when all the world had gone mad in sin, but was preserved through Noah, through the ark. The seed was kept in a world that was filled with idolatry by the call of Abram out of his idolatry in the land of Ur. The seed was kept in the midst of a dysfunctional, murderous, incestuous family through a prisoner turned royal administrator named Joseph. The seed was kept from the hands of a murderous Pharaoh by the life and ministry of Moses, the servant of God. The seed was kept in spite of all the false prophets, idolatrous kings, Assyrian occupation, Babylonian destruction, Roman oppression, and thousands of attempts at the destruction of God's people by that old nasty serpent. The seed was ultimately kept in a willing young virgin girl living in an undesirable and unimportant place by the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. The seed, having been kept, now comes to destroy sin forever in the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Mary, adopted by Joseph, son of David, son of God, and Savior of the world comes that we might believe in that seed in Jesus and grow and have faith in him let's pray father God we are thankful and grateful today Lord who you choose doesn't make any sense to us but we just thank you that you're God because it doesn't make any sense to me that you chose me to use me as you will but God we are thankful today that your word tells us how Jesus came into this world. And Lord, that he is indeed the anticipated, expected, hoped for Messiah who comes in a way that was unexpected but prophesied. 
who comes in order that he might set up his righteous kingdom that will never end. And we thank you, O God, those of us who know you, that we are part of that kingdom even now. Lord, we pray that if there are any under the sound of my voice that don't know Jesus Christ in that way, in the pardon of their sins, that, Lord, you would work in their hearts before they leave this place today, that they might know you as well. Give glory, we give honor, we give praise to the mighty and matchless one, even Jesus the Christ, our Savior and Messiah. And we thank you for these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.